Brandy. Yes, Kristen. Are we experts at what? Anything? No. No, we are not. So we're just two ladies who love black eyeliner, a cold can of Fresca, and a really juicy lawsuit. Damn Skippy. I'm Brandy Egan. And I'm Kristen Pitts. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll talk about KKK leader D.C. Stevenson, whose vicious attack on a white woman ultimately led to the decline of the KKK. And I'll be talking about Anna Nicole Smith, the Playboy playmate who famously contested her 90-year-old husband's will and took the fight all the way to the Supreme Court. Brandy. Yes, Kristen? We have a sponsor. <gasps> we do? No. <laughs> Wouldn't it be cool, though? It sure would. In the meantime, let's make this sponsored by my husband, the gaming historian who every week sets us up with our audio equipment. Head on over to the YouTube channel, uh, Gaming Historian. <laughs> the name of the show. That is the uh, Gaming Historian. <laughs> Don't forget the uh, people. You'll go somewhere else. That's right. All right. You ready to learn about DC Stevenson? I am. This guy was a world-class asshole. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> I will say, there's there's going to be a huge silver lining to this story, but the story itself is just awful and a total bummer, and we're just going to get through it together. Just, yeah, we'll hold hands. <laughs> okay. Maybe sing Kumbaya afterwards, just to lift our spirits a bit. S'mores? Yeah. Okay. Yes, please. So... How can I have s'more something when I haven't had any... <laughs> That is awful. What's that from? <laughs> Sandlot. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a great family. <laughs> Sorry. Take it away, Kristen. Let's start with 1915. The movie Birth of a Nation just came out, and it was like the Titanic of its day. It was this huge, long movie. Tons of people went out to see it. It was the first movie ever shown in the White House. Oh, wow. I know. And yeah. it was basically KKK propaganda. Mm -hmm. Because the Klan kind of died out in the late 1870s. But this movie came out and kind of, like, re-energized people. And I didn't watch it, so I don't know the plot <laughs> in depth. <laughs> yes. But... My understanding is that it basically paints black men as very sexually aggressive toward white women, you know, super rapey, and these Klan members as protectors of mm -hmm. white women. And, you know, like... Mm, yes. Yeah. Like, super into law and order and justice and, you know, just good Christian men, you know, mm -hmm. all that bullshit. That's 1915. As a result of that movie and, you know, a lot of other factors, mm -hmm. interest in the Klan kind of swells. And it gets huge in the South and in the Midwest. And so the second wave of the Klan, they are anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish, and of course they're anti-Black. I'm not going to get a whole lot into the Klan because I think we know about the Klan. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> not nice guys. No, yes. As um, it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> Cross burnings, lynchings, threats of violence. 
And in this wave, I'm not sure if it was the same way in the first wave of the Klan, but in this one especially, there was this idea that they would protect womanhood. Mm. So what that means... (laughs) (laughs) Tell me what that means. I'm really excited to learn. Because obviously it's not protecting every woman. (laughs) You know, it's a specific type of woman. Um, Not just all white women. It's like the specific type of white woman. So I did a little reading last night, and it's just gross. Like, it wasn't uncommon for women who'd been divorced or who fought for the right to vote or who basically wanted any kind of independence to be beaten by the Klan, intimidated by the Klan. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there was also one of a woman who just didn't go to church much. Oh my gosh! Lock me up. No kidding. On to our guy. It's 1920. Could you not call him our guy? (laughs) (laughs) On to this asshole we're going to talk about. I like that much better. (laughs) Very good. Good point. (laughs) So, 1920, D.C. Stevenson moves to Indiana. Okay. Here's what he tells people about himself. (laughs) I just love this. He tells people, I come from a very wealthy family. I I went to college, but then I had to stop to go be a war hero. He tells people, oh, I fought the Germans in France in World War I. And this is my favorite part that he told people. He said that before he left for war, he, you know, just bought a few stocks, like didn't, didn't think too much of it. Went off to war, became this war hero came back to the United States, and oopsies, he's a millionaire now. It's like the Bitcoin (laughs) story. I'm like, oh, I forgot I had this. (laughs) That's what he told everybody. But, of course, the truth was just that he was a master bullshitter. Mm -hmm. He didn't come from a wealthy family. His parents were sharecroppers. He Mm -hmm. never went to college. He didn't go overseas for war. He went to officer training but he was just a recruiter in the United States for the military. Uh-huh. Let's see. The other lovely thing he did was he attempted to desert his pregnant wife, but, and I'm reading directly from my notes here, <laughs> she tracked his bitch ass down and got a divorce. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing was that he'd also been fired from his job at a newspaper for being an argumentative drunk. Ooh. Yeah. Uh. So that kind of sets the scene. Yeah. He's horrible to women, loves booze. But prob- apparently, right, very, probably charming. Yes. And exactly. a great bullshitter. Yeah, and that's that's definitely what you have to keep in mind. Absolutely. Even though, like, we know he was awful, he had some charm, and yeah. he could talk his way out of a lot of mm-hmm. stuff, and could convince people to do things. And he eventually remarried. By the time he gets to Indiana, he's 29 with his second wife. So in 1921, he's invited to join the KKK. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) This is when things get really dangerous, obviously, Mm -hmm. because until this point in his life, he's been kind of a drifter. He's really just a bullshitter who has nothing to show for himself. Now he has a cause to believe in. And yeah. Yeah. Now he has friends. (laughs) Oh, gosh. He's got power all of a sudden, and he becomes a recruiter for the Klan, which I think is so scary, because like I said, I'm pretty sure he was a recruiter for the military. Mm-hmm. I could have Googled this before we talked. You but, did. You're right. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I am positive that he was a rec- Remember, two experts, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> he, In my mind, he took this expertise that he got from the government And perfected on this legitimate job. And then he brought it to the fucking KKK. Mm -hmm. And he was 
insanely effective. Under his guidance, the Indiana clan exploded. They eventually had the largest chapter of any state. It was absolutely huge. At one point in time, thanks to his efforts, one in three white men in Indiana were members of the clan. Holy shit. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. Also, this doesn't totally fit in here, but I feel like it should be mentioned. Protestant ministers got in free. Oh. Isn't that well, gross? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Eventually, you know, he's experiencing all this success. He sets up an office in Indianapolis and he starts the KKK's newspaper, The Fiery Cross. <laughs> <laughs> A little on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> 1922. D.C. Stevenson is doing great at the Klan, terrible at his marriage. He likes to get drunk all the time, come home, beat his wife up. So eventually they divorce. Fast forward to July 4th, 1923. D.C. Stevenson is named Grand Dragon of the Indiana Klan. I didn't even know that was a thing. Grand Dragon? Grand Dragon. Sounds a little uh, Asian-y for the Klan, <laughs> right? <laughs> Because, like, I ended up coming across a lot of these names while yes. I was researching. Yeah. These are the stupidest names you've ever heard. Like, Imperial Wizard. Yeah. You know, just like all yes. this stuff that you think a dumb 11 year old. I was going to say, like, a 13 year old yeah. boy made these up in his yes. basement. Yes. yes. <laughs> I thought about this for an embarrassing amount of time. Because I also, when I was looking at these titles, did you ever watch Toddlers and Tiaras? Absolutely. Okay. You know, like, the first episode I watched, I expected, okay, they're going to get first, second, or third, right? Uh, no. no. Little Miss Grand Supreme. Yes, Ultimate Grand yes. Supreme. <laughs> and they they all of- sound like various, like, versions of tacos at Taco Bell. Yes! yes! Oh, my God! Oh, my God! Your mind went exactly where my mind was. Okay, so here's my theory. I cannot believe you said that. My theory is that if you take all the words on the Taco Bell menu yes. and you put them in a bag yes. and you take all the words that make up child beauty pageants <laughs> and you put those in a bag, if you draw from each bag, you will have a clan yes. title eventually. <laughs> so, ultimate grand crunch wrap supreme. Yes. Like, oh, God. I can't Absolutely. believe your mind went there. Okay, so he is named Grand Dragon, Prettiest Eyes of the Indiana Clan. <laughs> and he's named this in front of a crowd of almost 100,000 people. Oh my god! Isn't that so gross and that so is, terrifying? Uh, yes. He was also, I think this was more private, he was also named the head recruiter for seven other states. And the title for that, and I am not making this up, is King Klegel. <laughs> like kegels it's way too close (laughs) i love that they're supposed to be this like oh really tough masculine awful organization but like yeah they're just a couple letters off exactly during this ceremony he allegedly said to this crowd my worthy subjects citizens of the invisible empire clansmen all greetings it grieves me to be late the president of the united states kept me unduly long counseling on matters of state only my plea that this is the time and the place of my coronation obtain me for me surcease from his prayers for guidance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, oh my gosh. And I was just curious who was president. I was going to ask yeah. you who was president, but I didn't want to like put you on the spot if you hadn't Googled it. No, so. I did Google it. Was Warren, it Warren G. Harding? I was going to say Warren G. Harding. Did you really guess? Oh, yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah. Um, some people have come out and said that he didn't actually say this. Mm-hmm. I included it just because either way, it's kind of important to just set the tone for he he saw himself as hugely influential mm-hmm. and people thought of him as hugely influential mm-hmm. especially in politics at this time because it was around this time that Indiana the Indiana clan got super involved in politics mm-hmm. here was the candidate that DC Stevenson loved he loved someone who was not super confident someone who was a little sheepish and someone who was convinced that he would not win without the Klan support. Mm-hmm. So that basically when the Klan helped him get into office and then D.C. Stevenson said, hey, I want this, that, and the other thing, the guy would be like, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Someone with no spine was his ideal candidate. Absolutely. Other things that the Klan loved. The Klan supposedly was very in favor of prohibition. They did not like alcohol at all. They were very much against bootleggers. I know. That's a weird one to me. I don't know why, but... they. I think it was kind of a religious yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And because of that, women really kind of got on board with the Klan. Mm-hmm. Did you ever watch the Ken Burns documentary on Prohibition? Mm-mm. Oh, it is so good. And it, it goes into a lot of the role that women played. Uh-huh. Because... You know, at first you're kind of like, God, dumb women. But when you learn more about, like, what their lives were like, okay, so they couldn't earn enough money to support their family. So if you had the bad fortune to be married to a drunk guy, you were just screwed. And so were your kids. You know, all the money went out the window. So a lot Mm -hmm. of them thought, okay, the only option is to just get rid of this alcohol. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the best course of action. Wow. Yeah. It's weird. It is. That's such a weird thing to think about, but that is true. I mean, they wouldn't have had a way to support their families without their husbands, so. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure getting a divorce at that time was tough. Yeah, absolutely. D.C. Stevenson managed to do it. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) He got it down pat. (laughs) So KKK, they are in favor of prohibition, and they're also, again, protectors of virtuous womanhood. Mm. But the thing was, even though that's what the Klan said they were after, D.C. Stevenson was awful to women and was a huge drunk. I've compiled a list of some of his attacks on women during this time. And this is just this is just a list of what he was either caught in the act uh-huh. doing or what women had the courage to come forward. Oh my gosh. So just imagine like how how, big, how much deeper yeah, it probably goes. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Here's, here's the start of the list. After that July 4th ceremony where he was named Grand Crunchwrap Supreme, <laughs> a woman told told police that Stevenson tried to rape her and that, quote, he is a beast when he's drunk. Then, in Ohio, he pled guilty to indecent exposure after police caught him with his pants down next to his 22-year-old secretary. Yeah. Ugh. So this, this I'm taking directly from this article I found in Smithsonian Magazine. Mm-hmm. It says, They were parked on the side of a highway, and the officer came up to them, and Stevenson grabbed her left hand, pushed it toward the officer, and said, My God, would you insult this girl? Did you see that ring, that diamond ring? I'm going to marry this girl. We are engaged. He added that he was an official and couldn't afford to have all this notoriety and publicity. What a winner. Yeah. Ugh. 
That theme... I'm just going to go ahead and apologize right now for the amount of ugh <laughs> I'm going to do during this because... Uh, it's normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you say to that? Right. What the hell do you say to that? I included that quote just because I think it shows how manipulative and also how quick he was on his feet. Mm -hmm. And you'll notice as we go through this stuff, that's kind of a place he jumped to a lot of like, no, I'm in love with this woman. Mm -hmm. No, we're, we're going to get married. Well, I'm protecting this woman. That goes back to their whole, Uh mm -hmm. she's not a victim of anything. Yeah, no. Here's another gross one. In 1924, Stevenson tried to rape a manicurist who was sent to his hotel room. I read two different versions of this story, and it seems like either one could be true, really. It seems like maybe one was just more detailed than Mm -hmm. the other one. In the first one, a bellboy attempted to save her, and Stevenson punched the bellboy. Mm -hmm. In the second one, which again was in the Smithsonian Magazine article, it went into a lot more detail. And the woman is quoted as saying, There were three full quarts of whiskey, and when I told him that I didn't want any, he came over and grabbed me. He said that he would give me $100 if I would allow him to have intercourse with me. Of course, he was more rude than I care to be expressing it. I told him I was not in the habit of being insulted by anyone like that, and he said, You will or I'll kill you. She fled and ran into two of his associates outside who tried to console her. Don't pay any attention to him, one said. He is a good fellow. He is drunk. He's all right when he's sober. You go downstairs and don't bother about it. Ugh. Yeah. What a winner. Yeah. This guy. To me, I, and I don't know if this is the right way to look at it, but I almost get more annoyed and grossed out by the guys who surround him. Oh, that's what I was about to say. All the people that are defending him. Yes. And yes. Because to me, it's like, it's one thing to have this rapist. Yeah. But it's another for these supposedly more normal people to be like, oh, he's fine. Just wait for him to sober up. He just gets a little rowdy when he drinks. I hate that. Yeah, I hate that shit. (laughs) Absolutely. I've been drunk a number of times in my life. (laughs) I have never raped anybody. (laughs) I don't mean to brag to you. (laughs) Uh, But the fun doesn't end. Okay, so here's another one. Then, that same year, a woman who was at a party at Stevenson's home told police that he had locked her in in a room, knocked her down, bit her, and, quote, tried to force himself on me. I mean, I have no words. I know. It's just fucking awful. Yeah, yeah. No, (laughs) this guy was completely awful. Slight side note. You know, I've been quoting a lot from the Smithsonian Magazine article, which is an awesome article. I loved it. But this article had the dumbest subhead I've ever (laughs) seen. (laughs) So here's what the subhead was. The Grand Dragon of the Klan and prominent Indiana politician had a vicious streak that had horrifying consequences. A vicious streak? (laughs) (laughs) So... I just think, like, when I saw that use of vicious streak... That's still... He's a Klansman! He's a Klansman, yes! There's no streak. It's yeah, like a, it's he a is, yes. that's, that's him 100%. I just yes. think... And I want to say, the article is great, and usually the writers are not the ones who write the subheads. Yeah. But, damn. I mean, you only use vicious streak if it's like, 
oh, Boy Scout had a vicious streak. <laughs> right. um, you know, yeah. Sunday school teacher had a vicious streak. Yes. Not, not leader Clans of the clan. <laughs> Duh. Ugh. Anyway, okay, so that was a little side note. We're in 1924 now, and the important thing to know about this point in time, he's built up the clan, tons of members, he's got political influence. But he's also got this bad history of assaulting women. Around this time, he starts to have really bad blood with Haram Evans, who was the KKK's imperial wizard. And that's the head of the national organization. So he's the head, head clan. Yeah, he's king the, of the douchebags. Yes. And yes. DC Stevenson. He's got the biggest is, pointy hat. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> These two are butting heads, and I think a lot of it was about financial stuff mm-hmm. because there was tons of money to be had. There was a lot of greed. And also, the other thing I think is, in any organization, there's a certain percentage of the people who are just going to be assholes. You just can't help it. You know, I, I don't know, like maybe 10%. In the KKK... Yeah, it's all, it's <laughs> it's all, all of them! Yes. So... You know, I'm, I'm sure these are just, like, naturally hateful people who Absolutely. are not going to be fun to, Absolutely. to work with. Anyway, the two of them are kind of at each other's throats. And at one point, Stevenson even resigned from the KKK, but he was eventually reinstated or, like, tried to create his own competing group. I don't I don't know what he did. A spinoff. A KKK spinoff. <laughs> the JJJs. <laughs> just as hateful. <laughs> we were red rooms. <laughs> Trademark pending. (laughs) So fast forward to the summer of 1924. Imperial wizard Haram Evans, he wants to get rid of Stevenson so badly. And all of a sudden it kind of clicks for him. Oh shit, the way I can get rid of this guy is by using his drinking and the assaults against women to get rid of him. Because, you know, supposedly we're anti-drinking and we're, you know, just we just love ladies. (laughs) So he organizes a clan tribunal. And he charges Stevenson with drunkenness and disrespecting virtuous womanhood, etc. <laughs> the Klan Tribunal finds him guilty. And they actually voted to ban him from the organization for life. Man, if you are banned <laughs> from the KKK, you know you're <laughs> awful. Jeez. Next level. Yeah. <laughs> but, okay, so here's, here's my favorite part. This is just so crazy. That did not stop Stevenson. He just went back to Indiana and was like, nah, don't worry about it. Uh Uh-huh. And he he was just like, that was a plot by the Southern KKK to kind of get me out of office. Don't worry about it. Fake news. You know? (laughs) (laughs) Interesting correlation you're making there. (laughs) Um, Let's move on. (laughs) So he said their verdict was just an evil plot. You know, and people Mm -hmm. apparently were like, okay. Again, I'm going to read directly from my notes. So he was a human turd, but you can't shame a turd. So he kept going. This is the stuff they can't write in these articles. <laughs> right. Now let's talk politics. With Stevenson's help, Ed Jackson became the governor of Indiana. And Stevenson helped a bunch of other guys get into office in Indiana. Obviously, Stevenson was riding pretty high at this point. He was confident that one day he'd become a U.S. senator. And he thought that he might one day become president. Wow. Yeah. Terrifying. Yes. At one point, he said, I am the law in Indiana. And it was kind of true. Because he'd put... You know, like, that's huh? like Cartman. <laughs> <laughs> Where's back my authority? 
look like Cartman and then look yourself in the mirror and think, I'm part of a master race. Yeah. But, oh, God. <sighs> so he had a ton of influence on the people who ran Indiana. He could influence policies. So, yeah, he was pretty much the law in Indiana. At this point, he's rolling in dough. Uh, it's 1925, and this is the point where one in three white men in Indiana are members of the Klan. Now we're getting to the crime that eventually led to his downfall. It's January 12th, 1925, the inauguration for Governor Ed Jackson. It's at this event that Stevenson met 28-year-old Madge Oberholzer. Madge was the manager of the Indiana Young People's Reading Circle, which was part of Indiana's education mm -hmm. department. Basically, my understanding is they, they got together for dinner occasionally. They would see each other at parties sometimes. And eventually, Stevenson asked for her help to write a book about nutrition. So... They did. And that seems like a strange turn. Yeah, until, <laughs> until you hear the explanation. Oh, okay. <laughs> Their book was called 100 Years of Health. You know, they wrote this up. Now for the reason. <laughs> They've got this book about nutrition. Then Stevenson goes to his political friends and he says, you know what? Every school child in Indiana should know about nutrition. Oh, there it is. <laughs> you should pass a bill. <laughs> and guess what? The only book that met the requirements of the bill was 100 Years of Health. Mm -hmm. He's already rich. He's just adding and adding and adding. On March 15th, 1925, at around 10 p.m., Madge comes home from a date. And there's this urgent message from D.C. Stevenson's secretary. She comes to find out D.C. is headed to Chicago really soon, and he needs to see her right away. It's very urgent. They have to get together. So she's like, okay. D.C. Stevenson's bodyguard comes to get her. He brings her to D.C. Stevenson's house, and when she gets there, she realizes there are no other women there. It's just dudes, and they're all drunk. Mm. And they want her to drink. She says no. They pretty much force her to drink. She ends up vomiting. You know, it's bad. And while she's there, D.C. Stevenson keeps saying, I want you to come to Chicago with me. Come to Chicago with me. He says he loves her. And she's like, no, I don't want to go to Chicago. She's pretty freaked out by this point. You know, mm -hmm. she, I don't uh, think she yeah. realized what she was getting into. Right. She tried calling home, but nobody picked up. She still lived with her parents. Mm -hmm. At this point... They're like, we're going to Chicago. And they put her in in the car. And, you know, at this point, her mind's kind of racing. And she's like, wait, wait, wait. Stop by my house. I just want to get my hat. I want to have a hat for this journey. But, and her thinking, I'm sure, was I'll get inside yeah. and just lock the door and that'll be that. Right. Well, they didn't stop for mm -hmm. that. Instead, they went straight to the train station. Ooh, this, this part sucks. Not that the other stuff didn't suck. Compared <laughs> <Yeah>. to <laughs> the lighthearted fairy yeah. that so far. <laughs> they got on the, on the train, and immediately Stevenson went nuts. He ripped her dress off, chewed her body all over. He bit her tongue, her neck, her face, her breasts, and her ankles. And he drew oh blood. Gosh. And he beat her up, and he raped her. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's horrible. The next morning, the train arrived in Hammond, Indiana, and they got off there. But before they got off the train, you know, obviously, Madge was in unimaginable pain. Yeah. Because, you know, she's been kidnapped, she was raped, she was beaten up, and she was bitten. I like, mean, I can't even... 
I can't even process the no, biting. No, I mean, that, that to me is, like, if you want to pick the creepiest part. Uh, it's the yeah, creepiest yeah. part. I mean, it's it's hard to say that over rape, but it's yeah, super oh, creepy. God. And the fact that he drew blood, mm-hmm. too, I just shows how vicious it was. At one point on the train, Stevenson starts showing off this gun he has. And Madge was like, please shoot me. Just shoot me. You know, I'm I'm just done. Which, oh. yeah. I, I kind of feel for her because I always think whenever I watch a horror movie, there's all, they're always trying to survive to the end. But I kind of feel like, man, once I've experienced enough stuff, I think I'd be like, and and I'm good. I'm, yeah. I'm done. You know, yeah. there's no way I'm going to have a normal life after, after this. this yeah. yeah. Anyway, they get off the train. And at this point, it's Stevenson, his bodyguard, his driver, and Madge. And they go to this hotel, and they check in under an alias. Which, what what's the fucking deal with the bodyguard and the driver who just, you know... Stand by and let it happen. Yeah, yeah. Or like... And I wonder if they were in the train compartment with the two right. of them. But, I mean, obviously, they saw her the next day. Uh, yeah. Bite marks and... Ugh. They're at the hotel. They eat a little breakfast, maybe sleep or whatever. Then Madge asks the bodyguard to drive her to the drugstore to buy some makeup. Again, I like she's she's trying, she's just trying for an exit strategy. Yes, just anything to get away. And and I love that these guys. I guess were either so dumb, or maybe the maybe the guy felt a little sorry for her. But they believed that she just wanted to go buy some rouge mm-hmm. at this point. Like, oh yeah, I've been bitten all over and yeah. been kidnapped, and you know. My cheeks aren't rosy enough. <laughs> yeah, my, I've got to make sure I'm looking good. <laughs> he waits in the car. She goes into the drugstore. She buys some rouge, but she secretly bought mercury tablets, and she hid them in her coat. And her plan was to take all of them at once and kill herself. Oh, my gosh. But she could only get a few of them down. Ugh. And so then, this poor woman, so then she starts vomiting blood. And at this point, the guys are kind of freaking out a little bit. Like, woo, boy, this is more more than we bargained for, uh, more than we expected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She is, at this point, very, very ill. And Stevenson panicked. They ended up driving back to Indianapolis. And he forced her to drink ginger ale and milk. Settle the stomach. Oh, my God. <laughs> Obviously, she vomited that. Yeah. I mean, Have you ever vomited milk? It's the oh, worst thing God, to vomit it ever. Awful. It's awful. I mean, but I thinking of that combination. Yeah. Ginger ale and milk. I would vomit that right, <laughs> right. now. And I have not ingested any mercury yeah. tablets. <laughs> Ugh. Uh, this is from the Smithsonian article again. All the while, she cried and screamed and begged to be thrown from the car and left on the side of the road. You will stay right here until you marry me, she recalled him saying. You must forget this. What is done has been done. I am the law and the power. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. She's just begging for them to yeah, just let her end die. It. Just end it. Yeah. And instead he's saying, I'll make it right by marrying you. Like, oh, oh God. Yeah. It's horrific. At this point in the car, it's the bodyguard, the driver, Stevenson, and Madge. And it seemed like Madge was going to die. But all the while, Stevenson kept talking about himself and how he would be fine. No. Like, yeah, oh, don't worry about him. He's going to be fine. He talked about how he wouldn't be punished. 
And later, Madge told her lawyer, I heard him say also that he had been in a worse mess than this before and got out of it. Okay, this is what I was going to say. The fact that her his driver and bodyguard aren't reacting mm. to this makes me believe that this is not the first time that they've been in this situation That's with him. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're totally ready for this. Absolutely. They're, they're this. not shocked by this. This yeah. is, you know, standard operating procedure. Oh god. They get to Stevenson's house finally, but Madge's mom is waiting at the door. Cuz at this point she's very worried. She thought her daughter would probably be out for a little while for this urgent message supposedly. And she's been gone for hours. They said something to make her go away. I don't know what they said. But they carried Madge to a room above Stevenson's garage, and she stayed there for a few days. Mm. After a few days, they finally took her home. And they made her promise to tell everyone that she'd been in a horrible car accident. Yes, because you often end up with bite marks Mm -hmm. from a car accident. Yeah, the car careens against yours, and then (laughs) you just get bitten. The guys drop her off at her house. As soon as they leave, she tells everybody the truth. Mm -hmm. She's not doing that bullshit. Her mom calls a doctor, and the doctor immediately is like, there's no way she's going to recover from this. And he kind of goes through the list. She's got a kidney infection. She's in shock. It looks like the bites might be infected. Oh, my God. Plus the mercury tablets that she ingested. Plus the fact that she went for so many days with no medical treatment. You know, Mm -hmm. you think about those first couple days. I'm sure those are pretty damn critical. Yeah, absolutely. And nothing. At that point, the family attorney came over to take a dying declaration from Madge. Because they they knew, you know, Mm -hmm. there's there's no way she's going to survive this. Mm -hmm. And the idea was they wanted to get Madge's account down, exactly what happened, maybe to use it in court. Good for them. Yeah. Do you need a Kleenex or anyway? No, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> okay. Madge died. <laughs> Is it just the air in it's here? It's just the air in here. You know, Norm's been talking about how we need a humidifier. <laughs> okay. Next week. Next week. Fine. <laughs> next week, you prissy woman. <laughs> I will take care of you. I require a specific amount of humidity in the air. I want only blue M&M's. I'll be surrounded by white candles. My writer is very specific. Yes, yes. You're just the worst, you know? So, Madge died April 14th, 1925, almost a month after she'd been brought back home. Mm. This poor woman. Oh, my gosh. Interestingly, you know, DCC, blah, blah, blah. D.C. Steve... Whoa. D.C. Stevenson. You've only said it I know, times so far. just fine. Yes. So, D.C. Stevenson, he thinks he can get, get away with anything. Mm-hmm. He's definitely going to get away with this. Guess fucking what? <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't. <laughs> he had a ton of influence over tons of politicians in Indiana. Here's one who he didn't have influence over. Marion County Prosecutor William Remy. William Remy charged him with rape, kidnapping, conspiracy, and second-degree murder. And he also charged the bodyguard and the driver. Good! Yeah. Yeah. Here's the hiccup before they went to trial. The coroner's office said that Madge's official cause of death was mercury poisoning. Mm-hmm. 
And she took the mercury herself. Yeah. That, that kind of sucks. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's that's rough because it doesn't make things impossible for the prosecution, but it makes it a lot harder. Because basically def- the defense could argue that the rape wasn't, and I'm quoting here, the proximate cause of her death. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to get technical, and I'm going to get technical thanks to the website famoustrials.com, which is a fabulous website. It has a ton of information on mm-hmm. this case. Any errors are ma- I make are obviously just me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not the guy who wrote this. <laughs> to get technical, since her death was caused by the mercury poisoning, according to the coroner's office, and not the attack itself or the infection from the attack, The prosecutor had to prove that Madge's decision to ingest the mercury tablets was a foreseeable consequence of the rape, therefore making Stevenson responsible, you know? Yeah. This kind of made me think of, do you remember the Tyler Clementi case? The, I, th- I think it was at Rutgers, maybe? Yeah. He was a student. Uh-huh. And I, I want to say he was maybe in the closet. Yep. And his yeah. roommates videotaped him having sex. Yes. And committed suicide. And yep. I, think, I think the kids who videotaped it did get charged. And, right, yeah, I believe yeah. so. And, yeah. you know, it's, it just goes to that point of, yeah, it's a suicide, but... If what you did a suicide to the person, that was spurred by yes, what you did, yeah, yeah. yes, then then you're going to be responsible. Absolutely. Stevenson pled not guilty, and he thought he could get away with anything. He was so unbelievably arrogant. In the quotes he gave to newspapers, oh God, he he's just kind of like he just treated it as like oh this flippant little thing, and I mm-hmm. think he thought that other people would see it that way too, mm-hmm. like no big deal, which. I haven't really mentioned this, but obviously he got away with doing all kinds of stuff to women before. Yeah. And he's a leader of the KKK, so I'm sure he got away with doing all kinds of stuff to black people, Catholics, Jewish people, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, putting that into perspective, sure. Maybe he thought, I can get away with anything and Mm -hmm. nobody's going to care. Yeah. He was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) This thing became national news. It was huge. The reporters came in from all over the country, and people were disgusted. And not just everyday people. Indiana politicians, the one he put in, the mm-hmm. ones he put into office, were like, Ugh. and then members of the KKK were like, Ugh, yikes, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But here's the funny thing: Imperial douchebag Haram Evans, you know, mm-hmm. is the bad yeah. blood friend of me. Was initially kind of excited about this trial because, and this is just my my mind kind of spinning here, but I think he thought that people would see the trial, mm-hmm. you know, it would get Stevenson taken out of the clan, mm-hmm. but also people would view it as like one bad apple. Right. Yeah. Not. <laughs> yeah. That. Yeah. Let's not spoil the bunch. Now the rest <laughs> of us are great guys over here in the clan. Ooh. Come join us, won't you? I, I really think. <laughs> yeah. Just one bad guy. Um, And look how bad we think he is, too. So that shows, you know, how great we are over here at the clan. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's that. I think that was his mindset. And he it just like, I really think it did not occur to him that it would reflect badly on the clan as a whole. Right. And that people would be like, whoa, (laughs) yikes. Yeah. Don't like this one bit. Before trial, the defense, you know, jumped into action. They tried to get her dying declaration thrown out. 
And their logic was she didn't write it herself, which was true. Her lawyer wrote it, but he wrote it. He transcribed it for her. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. They also tried to argue that Madge wasn't of sound mind when she gave the dying declaration, but they couldn't prove that. And Mm -hmm. so that kind of didn't work out so well for them. Mm -hmm. We get to the day of the trial. Prosecution's opening argument. They said their star witness would really be Madge. And here's, here's what he said. Clean of soul, but with her bruised, mangled, poisoned, and ravished body, standing by her grave's edge, with the shadowy wings of the dark angel of death over her, will tell you the story of her entrapment, of her being drugged, kidnapped, assaulted, beaten, lacerated with beastly fangs, and finally, as the culmination of indignities and brutalities unheard of in a civilized community before, how she was forced by the loss of all that a good woman holds dear to take the deadly poison that contributed to her untimely death. Holy shit, that's Mm -hmm. fucking powerful! Mm -hmm. Yeah! Oh my gosh! Yeah. Don't you wish you could have been there? (laughs) Yes. I mean... It's kind of poetic. It really is. Yeah, yeah and it I like really that he's, you know, that last line of to take the deadly poison that contributed mm-hmm. to her untimely death. The prosecution called in witnesses to testify to how ill she was because I think her parents had some, like, tenants in the house, so they were all able to kind of say, yeah, mm-hmm. here was her condition. She was bitten all over. She was terribly sick. Her doctor testified that... He knew she would die because she hadn't gotten proper treatment in those first critical days. Then, and this was was a huge blow to the defense, the doctor who did the autopsy testified that the immediate cause of death was an infection carried through the bloodstream, localizing in the lung and in the kidney. What he was really saying there was, he said Madge could have recovered from the mercury, but it was the cuts mm-hmm. that did it. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, that, that's what a lot of this came down to. Yeah. Like, what, of all the terrible shit that happened, uh, yeah. what, what was it that killed yes. her? Yes. The defense argued that this was just a suicide. He shouldn't be responsible for a suicide. Suicide is not a crime in Indiana. You know, everybody back off. Mm-hmm. They, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just a simple suicide. Just a simple suicide. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, no. And then the coroner testified, and of course he disagreed with the doctor who had just testified, who'd done the autopsy. He testified that she died from the poisoning, not the infected cuts or mm-hmm. all that other stuff. Here's another fun detail. The defense also tried to basically throw her reputation to shit. It was like... Slut-shaming in a trial. Yeah. Here's my favorite one. They had a dentist testify that one time she asked him for some gin. Ooh, that (laughs) harlot. Yeah, she deserved all (laughs) kinds of terrible stuff. (laughs) Then a clan wife said that one time she saw Stevenson and Madge together at her house, acting kind of cozy. And someone else kind of said this. It's same as if thing. like page six was there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. You wouldn't guess who was coming <laughs> up in the booth at the back of the restaurant. <laughs> What's interesting to me is like, first of all, uh, I feel like some, you know, some things have not changed. You know, we want to blame victims for everything, but absolutely. Like, good God, what the hell are these people saying? Because she liked to drink, and because they'd hung out together, maybe even flirted. I mean, who knows that she deserved to be killed? Right. I, good God. I mean, that still happens today. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. 
horrible. What was she wearing? Yeah, exactly. Well, she was asking for it. God. She had a skirt and she was drinking. (laughs) And she had a vagina. She had it coming. (laughs) You know, if you don't want to get raped, you shouldn't have a vagina. Asking for it. So the attorneys got into a huge shouting match over this. And the judge had to basically shut them down and be like, look, we got to keep this civil. But again, wouldn't that be so exciting to be there to see all that? Yeah. We're getting to closing arguments now. The defense said, suicide is not a crime. You can't hold Stevenson responsible for Madge taking her own life. And one of the attorneys said, and this is a quote, if a man went home and committed suicide because his banker refused to lend him money, you wouldn't hang the banker. It would be a plain case of suicide, as this is. Suicide can't be homicide. Uh, That is not the same thing. (laughs) No. No, it is not. You have to wonder about that defense attorney. Like, yes, everyone is entitled to a defense, but you're trying to say that your client who raped somebody and bit somebody is the same as a banker Banker who wouldn't loan somebody money. (laughs) Samesies. Yeah. (laughs) No. I I just wonder, did he really believe that? Or was was that just grasping at straws? Like, this is what I've got. This is what I can argue. At this time, women are viewed as lesser, lesser beings. I don't know. Things have changed on that, though, Brandy. (laughs) (laughs) Now we have equal pay and all kinds of great stuff. You know, here's how I'll know we're equal. When tampons are free in bathrooms, like right next to toilet paper, that's when we'll know. (laughs) Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In their closing arguments, the prosecution called Stevenson a sadist, and a moral degenerate, which, fair. And they attacked the defense for slandering Madge's character. The jury deliberated for four hours, and on November 14th, 1925, they found Stevenson guilty of second-degree murder. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Stevenson's been found guilty of second-degree murder. Mm-hmm. You would think that, at the very least, that would be humbling. Yeah. Um, that you'd be like, well, need to rethink some things. Yeah. Make some New Year's resolutions. <laughs> Try to be a better person. <laughs> I am going to walk an extra mile a day. <laughs> and that is going to help me through this. But no, he he still thought he would get away with it. He Even would, after being found yeah, guilty. Yeah, he still thought, this will be fine. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, everybody. I'll be out in no time. The reason he thought that was because he put the governor in office. So mm-hmm. he thought that Ed Jackson would pardon him. Mm-hmm. It was like he didn't realize... That, like, he couldn't possibly do that because, no. like, no matter how many favors he owes you, he's still in office and has everybody watching him. Uh-huh. Yeah. And also, you know, I, I have... Maybe this is just me being optimistic, but I want to think that Ed Jackson was like... You know what? That's even too much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Like, I don't even want to, you know? That's just gross. (laughs) Stevenson gets pissed. He thought for sure he'd be pardoned. It becomes clear, no, you're not being pardoned. Mm -hmm. You're just going to sit in jail. Well, he didn't want to sit in jail. So, 1927, he's been behind bars for, I think, like, two years at this point. That's when he gets his revenge. 
he reaches out to the press and he says, I've got a big story for you. They, they come to him, and at that point, he released the names of all of the political leaders in Indiana who had been on the Klan <gasps> payroll. Yeah. Wow. So, it was a massive scandal. Yeah. The governor was indicted, and so were a bunch of other officials, and there was a huge crackdown, which mm-hmm. limited the Klan's influence. Mm-hmm. And also, I should mention, Stevenson appealed the court's decision, but that did not work. <laughs> 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 but his real revenge was releasing the names of everybody. Mm-hmm. So he got paroled in 1950, but was arrested again less than a year later and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Mm-hmm. In 1956, he was discharged from prison again, and he married his third wife, who left him a few years later when he was arrested for trying to molest a 16-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. Still a winner. Mm-hmm. Some things don't change. <laughs> Now, this part is just what I remember from Wikipedia, so nobody question it, please. But this 16-year-old girl who he tried to molest, that happened in Independence, Missouri. And the way he got out of that one was he paid a fine of $300. Well, yeah. Uh-huh. Of course. Just 300 bucks, and you're on your way. Yeah. Molest, molest <laughs> away. Don't you do that again, <laughs> master. Hey! hey. <laughs> Now give us the cost of an on-sale room, bud. Get on out of here. This guy, again, the $300 figure, that's just what I remember from Wikipedia. So it could be not true. Let's hope to God it's not true. I'm, but yeah. I kind of believe I kind it. Of, yeah. yeah. So then, when he was 74, he met a 55-year-old widow and married her. Mm. But he was still married to the third wife, technically. Oh, And he died from a heart attack in 1966. And I want to say... Shit, I read this a while ago. I want to say he died while he was, like, bringing her a fruit basket or a bouquet of flowers or just, like... I hope it's a fruit basket. (laughs) Yeah. I just like that visual. (laughs) (laughs) Just... The the idea that he died that way just... Yeah. His fourth wife claimed she didn't know anything about his previous life and, you know, that he was just a big old sweetie pie. Wow. Yeah. I'm really upset that you skipped my fruit basket joke just then. (laughs) Do we need to revisit it? No. (laughs) Brandy, let's talk about that fruit basket. (laughs) I said that's bananas and you just Oh my god! Oh my god! You know what? This is the second time in a row when one of your cheesy jokes just goes way over my head. Like, I just did not, did not even catch it. It's too sophisticated. My, I feel like a different level uh-huh. here, so mm-hmm. try to keep up. <laughs> Let's wrap up with the impact this had on the clan. Because this is the massive silver lining mm-hmm. of this hor- whole horrible story. Yeah, you made me listen to all this shit. Show yeah. me the good okay. stuff. So the good stuff. <laughs> Is the impact this had on the Klan. Yeah. In 1925, the Klan had 250,000 members. In 1928, so that was a little after the time when he released all those names and after this trial, membership dropped to just 4,000. Oh, wow. Yes. Yes. And I'm going to read you a quote from a criminal law textbook because I think this, this is so creepy and says so much about the impact of this case. The case and its fallout effectively destroyed the Klan in Indiana, and it may have reversed its ascendancy as a national political force. 
That's amazing. Yeah. 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 I mean, you think about how different things could have been mm-hmm. if this trial hadn't happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is that's a that's a big silver lining. Yeah, it's. I I don't want to sound. I have not fully thought this through in my head, so just bear with me. But you think of the amount of good that that does to not have the clan controlling absolutely the, the government. government. Yeah, yeah. And basically, I mean, at that point, it's like they control everything. Yeah. The good of that versus one woman dying in a horrible way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, I think uh, that's the most horrible thing you've ever said. Yes. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. I get what you're trying yeah, to say. Yeah. I get it. Like, I'm guessing that she maybe would have been behind that as well. If, if that's what I, if I had to die for this to happen, mm-hmm. that maybe... Maybe that's okay. I do wish there was more about her yeah. known. Like, was she cool with the clan? I mean, right? I, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. You don't know. Yeah, but anyway, um, I'm I'm just glad that her parents thought to say, no, we need to take a dying declaration mm-hmm. from her because we no are going to pursue kidding. this. Because one of the big factors here was the embarrassment and shame that would come from a trial where, like, they just say what happened to her. Yeah. You know, because it's still shameful to talk about rape Absolutely. and all that stuff. But at that time, like 1925, that had to be yeah, even more horrible. Absolutely. I mean, shameful for her family. Yeah. yeah. Ugh. That was, a, that was a heavy one. That was, that was awful. Really heavy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I am definitely going to lighten it up after... Thank God. That one. <laughs> so, you mean you didn't write about a clan? I did week? not. Oh, good. <laughs> um, so when I chose to do Anna Nicole Smith, I knew a little bit going into it about the court case um, with her... 90 year old husband how she Mm -hmm. contested the will and how it stretched on for years and years and years but researching it i it was really interesting to me i found out that she was actually involved in a few different court cases um over her life so i'm just going to kind of do an overview touch on all of them okay cool so um anna nicole smith was born vicky lynn hogan on november 28th 1968 in houston texas Mm -hmm. she was the second child of 16 year old virgie may arthur Yeah. Um, Her father was Virgie's second husband. Second husband at 16. Oh, my God. Um, His name was Donald Eugene Hogan. They divorced um, shortly after Anna Nicole's birth um, in 1969 after Donald pled guilty to statutory rape of Virgie's 10-year-old sister. Oh, Um, Yeah, so she really had a really tumultuous life growing up. Um, She wasn't raised by either of her parents. I think she was raised by an aunt. Um, Probably for the best. Yeah. Virgie Virgie went on to marry four more times and had two more children. So um, at various points in her life, Anna Nicole Smith went by different versions of her name, kind of mashups between her birth name and then what would become her professional name. But I'm just going to refer to her as Anna Nicole Smith through the okay. whole the yeah. whole the good. whole thing here. Good, good, good. Um, so Anna Nicole dropped out of school after failing her freshman year of high school. She got a job at Jim's Crispy Fried Chicken, where mm-hmm. she met 16 year old fry cook Billy Wayne Smith. They married. The names. Yes, Vicky the Lynn name and Billy, Billy Wayne. Wayne. Yes, that is, that is some southern stuff <laughs> yes. right there. 
Um, they married within a few months, and at 19, she gave birth to their son, Daniel Wayne Smith. Three months after the birth of her son, she separated from her husband, citing abuse. Mm. Um, so she um, headed back to the Houston area. She had moved away with her um, with her husband. She took various jobs at that time. She worked at Walmart for a time. She worked at Red Lobster. Um, driving home one day, she saw this big billboard on the side of the highway for a gentleman's club. And she was really taken by the picture on the billboard. It was a <laughs> scantily clad, voluptuous woman in heels. Uh-huh. And she decided that she wanted to go there. Like so, go there for the job? Go there for, like, go there for a job. She okay. wanted to go there okay. for a job. So she went to Gigi's. That's this gentleman's club. Seeking a waitressing job. She was told that there were none available, but they um, asked her to audition instead to be a dancer. So she auditioned, and she was hired for the day shift. So I don't know if you know a lot about gentlemen's clubs, but that's not, we're not talking the varsity squad there. That's more the B team. Yeah. During the day. During the day on like a Tuesday. That's that's not saying much. But she was gorgeous, right? So, well, so when she first started, she actually, um, they said that she, she actually became popular pretty quickly, though she reportedly had no rhythm. She could not dance. She was a very clumsy on stage. And she was... Um, very small chested. She had oh. almost no boobs. So for oh. a gentleman's club, that's not, you know, your top seller Wait, usually. Are they interested in boobs. <laughs> <laughs> so but she like I said, she was very personable. She became very popular very quick there. Okay. And so she um worked a lot and she saved up for what would become her signature look. It was a multi-surgery procedure that resulted in um, 42 double D breasts Whoa. that um, consisted of two implants on each side and a total of three pints of fluid. Oh my God, two implants? Two on- implants on each side. Gross. So yes, like so they were against each yes, other? Yes, yep. Oh so, my God. Big old <laughs> knockers, I believe is the official term. Big old titties. <laughs> yes. Big old bitties. <laughs> yes. So it was here at Gigi's that she met J. Howard Marshall. So J. Howard Marshall was an 86-year-old oil tycoon. Mm -hmm. He was mourning the deaths of both his wife and his mistress. So he had been married for 30-something years. Uh Um, It was his second wife, and his wife was suffering from Alzheimer's. And Uh so he could no longer take her around town, take her to his events, you know, out to dinner. Um, And so he had taken a mistress. And he did all of that stuff with his mistress. And they went all over Houston. I mean, it was very well known that who he was and that this was his mistress. Mm -hmm. So his mistress, um, I think she was like 52, somewhere around there. Um, She died from complications of, I I believe it was a facelift, some kind of cosmetic surgery. She died from complications. And then two months later, his wife died from complications of Alzheimer's. So Wow. Yeah, it was. He was going through a really dark time. It, it was. It's reported that he was drinking heavily every day. He wouldn't get out of bed, mm-hmm. um, and he's eighty six years old, so yeah. he's already you know kind of on the frail side. And yeah. then to you yeah. know, so to lift his spirits, his driver and friend Dan Manning suggested a trip to the Titty Bar to find a new lady love, as he called it. 
So How one. Much you want to bet Dan just wanted to go go to the titty bar. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I've got an idea for you. <laughs> yes. So one October afternoon in 1991, he wheeled Marshall in his wheelchair into Gigi's, and there was Anna Nicole dancing in a red dress. And she'd had the surgery. The surgery by then, okay, yes. Gotcha. He was immediately taken by her looks and her shapely figure. Um, the next day, she traveled to his hotel room on his invitation, and they spent the day eating room service and learning about each other's lives. When she told him she needed to leave for work, he handed her an envelope with 10 $100 bills in it and told her she never needed to work again. Whoa. So, Can you imagine you, right? what that must have been, been like, like for her? her? Yes. Yeah. yeah. With that upbringing. Absolutely. That would have seemed like an enormous amount of money and... Just at, and then to be told, you know, don't ever go back yeah, to work. Yeah, you're taken care of. Yeah. You know, I would never call a boob job a good financial investment, <laughs> but maybe it was. It worked out for her. Yeah. So Dan Manning, um, J. Howard Marshall's friend and driver, mm-hmm. told him not to fall in love, to which he replied, it may already be too late for that. So Manning, concerned, alerted Marshall's son Pierce of the blossoming relationship, and he drove down from Dallas to Houston to warn his father of the financial jeopardy involved in um, in the situation. Mm-hmm. J. Howard Marshall accused his son of being jealous and said he oh. would do as he damn well pleased. <laughs> and, and how old was Anna Nicole at this point? Like 20? 24. Okay. Yeah, 24. Okay. Well, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, before long, Smith had stopped dancing at Marshall's insistence. He bought her a red Mercedes, took her on regular shopping sprees, including a $2 million trip to Harry Winston, which I don't know if you know what that is. It's like a really upscale um, jewelry store, like diamonds. and. I'm so low-end, I don't even know what Harry Winston is. (laughs) My God, a $2 million trip. Yes. Oh, my God. (laughs) He put her on the Marshall Petroleum payroll and gave her his credit card numbers. He told her he'd teach her how to spend money. Wow. Yeah. She was like the real life pretty woman. Yes. Yes. That is nuts. Yeah. So during this same time, her sometimes boyfriend kind of on again, off again um, thing, he was a bodybuilder. His name was Clay Spires. He convinced her to audition for Playboy. Mm -hmm. Despite an awkward audition, as I mentioned, you know, she wasn't. She had no rhythm. Yeah, no rhythm. And she was very comfortable being naked, but she was not graceful. So it was a very awkward audition. But the photographer really liked her and kind of pitched her to Playboy. And so... She first appeared on the cover of Playboy in March 1992, and then she was the centerfold in May 1992, and then went on to be Playmate of the Year in 1993. Um, so she had great success with Playboy. Well, and she was so gorgeous. She was, and that was something that the photographer really noticed about her, yeah. was that, you know, just, she was very comfortable naked, and that, you know, despite her awkwardness, she looked like Jane Mansfield, so... Who's that? Um, Some bombshell. Bombshell okay, actress, gotcha. yeah. And so he really played that up, did, like, yeah. the Marilyn looks, the old Hollywood curls, the big hair, whatever. Because she did. I mean, she had that gorgeous blonde hair. Mm-hmm. She was curvy. Yes. I mean, she just... Yeah. Yeah. Gorgeous. So, following her success with Playboy, she signed a deal with Guest Jeans, replacing supermodel Claudia Schiffer. At the time, she was really nervous about the deal because she had to meet, like, the president of Guest Jeans, the actual designer from Uh Guest Jeans, and she thought that he'd think she was fat. 
compared oh. to Claudia Schiffer. Oh, well, we're all well, fat compared right. to Claudia Schiffer. And she had never heard of guest jeans at the time. <laughs> yes. So she booked a campaign with them, and that led to several other modeling campaigns. Um, Marshall could not have been more proud of her. He put her up in houses all over the country so that she could be near different modeling jobs. He got her apartments in New York and LA and houses on the beach and he bought her all kinds of properties so that wherever she needed to be she'd have somewhere he even rented her um Marilyn Monroe's bungalow in LA oh my god that's so cool yeah oh So finally, in the spring of 1994, Smith gave in to Marshall's repeated proposals and agreed to marry him. Mm -hmm. They were married on June 27th, 1994. J. Howard Marshall was 89. Anna Nicole Smith was 26. Ew. Right? Ew. Yeah. Do you, hold on. Do you think? So, uh, I I read conflicting stuff um, that, um... They never had, you know, intercourse. Okay. But they had other kinds of... Ugh. Mm-hmm. St- Your stuff. hands are all over yeah, the Yeah, I know. <laughs> it was really limited what he could do because he was 89 years old yeah. and very frail. So, yeah, okay. Um, he would lay in the bed and she would rub against him and, oh, God. and such. Okay. So, yeah. Um... So shortly after this came what would become like her first court case. On August 22nd, 1994, New York Magazine used a picture of Smith on the cover of their issue titled White Trash Nation. In the photo, she's squatting in like a short skirt. So she's kind of like on the floor uh-huh. with her like knees bent and spread apart. Oh, like squatting like. Uh-huh. Yeah. And between her yeah. legs is a bag of cheesy poofs. <laughs> <laughs> And she's got these white cowboy boots on Uh and she's got, you know, her big blonde hair. And on the magazine, the blurb says, Tanya, Lisa Marie, John and Lorena, Roseanne and Tom, Paula, Jennifer and Bill, they're everywhere. Lock up your Twinkies. Whoa. Ouch. Yes. Yes. And so did she, hold on. So. She did the photo shoot, obviously. So, yeah, so I'll, yeah, so okay, I'll get to okay. this. So, um, in October 1994, her lawyer fo- filed a $5 million lawsuit against the magazine, claiming that Smith did not authorize the use of her photo. The okay. suit also alleged that the article damaged her reputation. So, her, lo- her, her lawyer stated that Smith was under the impression that she was being photographed for, like, the all-American look. <laughs> and then it was taken this okay. white trash okay. direction. Editor Kurt Anderson said that the photo was one of dozens taken for the cover and stated that, I guess they just found the picture we chose unflattering. Oh, shut up. Right? Yeah, shut <laughs> yes. up, dude. Come yes. On. So the lawsuit um, was eventually settled for an unreported unreported amount. Gotcha. So um, she was seeking $5 million. So I don't know what she ended up getting, but... It was I'm settled. sure that did damage her reputation a little because, like, yeah. this was well before the reality show. Yes. So if, if people only knew her through the guest jeans ad and... Absolutely. Know, yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm with her. Yeah. yeah. In December 1994, 
Marshall became very ill with pneumonia. His son, Pierce, assumed temporary guardianship of his father and cut Anna Nicole off completely. Oh. She had become accustomed to spending upwards of six figures a month and was caught completely off guard. He even, like, forwarded all the credit card bills directly to her. He wasn't paying anything. Um, six figures a month. Can six, you imagine? No, I can't. I can't no. imagine. No. I don't even know where I would <laughs> I, Right? Yes. I would buy everything in TJ Maxx. And still, <laughs> I'd still be fine. Daily shopping yeah. sprays to TJ Maxx, uh, Marshall. <laughs> I suppose I'd have to take it up a notch. Right, exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. No. So... Um, she visited Jay Howard in the hospital and holding a tape recorder asked him to repeat his promise to take care of her, oh. but he was unable to speak. Oh, man. Finally, his son Pierce hired bodyguards, significantly limiting her access to her husband. I was going to say, I was, I was kind of surprised she was able to get to him. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they, t- he totally cut her off and then blocked her access can you do that to someone's spouse apparently you can because he did yeah okay (laughs) wow yeah so then um on august 4th 1995 j howard marshall sick with stomach cancer died Mm. anna nicole smith was in new york when she got the call and she reacted with convulsions and was hospitalized wow two funerals were held what Anna Nicole opposed Pierce's plan to burn his dad, as she put it. Oh, cremation. That was Jay Howard's long-standing wish to be cremated. Yeah, yeah. So her funeral took place first. Jay Howard's body lay in a casket covered with white roses and lilies and a banner reading, From Your Lady Love. She wore her wedding dress and oh, veil. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. Daniel, oh. who was now nine, also wore the white tuxedo from their wedding. The two of them rose at one point to offer the Bette Midler song, Wind Beneath My Wings. Oh, no, they did In honor of all Jay Howard had done for them. Well, and she couldn't sing, right? No. I mean, I know that's, like, beside the point. No. But okay. Until this point, you know, with her childhood and all that stuff, I was really on her Yeah, side. the the, but, the wedding dress and veil really, really got me. And the banner. I'm, I'm yeah. thinking of what it would be like to be his son. Absolutely. And be like, okay, this, this show you're putting on needs to stop. This weird, crazy show. Yep. Yeah. So, within weeks of J. Howard Marshall's death, his son Pierce disputed her claim for half of her late husband's $1.6 billion estate. Whoa. She temporarily joined forces with J. Howard's other son, James Howard Marshall III, whom the elder Howard had disowned. Howard III claimed that J. Howard Marshall had verbally promised him a portion of the estate, like Smith. Howard III was also left out of J. Howard's will. The case Marshall versus Marshall would prove so complicated that the trial would not start for four years. Whoa. Yeah. So at this same time, Anna Nicole Smith was sued by Maria Serrato, Daniel's nanny, who after being fired by Anna Nicole, claimed she'd been plied with drugs and alcohol to have sex with her. And wait, then wait, Anna wait, Nicole, wait, hold on, hold on. Say yes, that yes, yes. What? Yes. 
So Daniel's nanny uh-huh. was after being fired, claimed that she had been dr- like given drugs, alcohol, and made to have sex with Anna Nicole Smith. Oh my god! Yes, and that when when she refused, Anna Nicole threatened to deport her if she oh. if she didn't do it. So she sought two million dollars in damages. Anna Nicole countered that it was Maria who took advantage of her sexually. So she did not deny that they had some kind of sexual relationship, but said, no, 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 it was the other way around. Um, This is weird. Yes. But she repeatedly missed her her depositions in this case because she was going through a lot of health issues at the time she was having she had to have surgeries to deal with her breast implants she was having infections and stuff Mm. um, with them and then she also had all these gastrointestinal issues due to a years-long abuse of prescription drugs okay so she was doing prescription drugs heavily which was leading to all these stomach problems Mm -hmm. and then she was having issues with her breasts and so she missed multiple depositions that she was supposed to give in this case. Gotcha. And so the judge was furious. Okay. And he ruled in Maria's behalf, ordering Anna Nicole to pay her more than $800,000. It was money she didn't have. So she declared personal bankruptcy, claiming $9 million in debts. Whoa. Yes. Good God. Here, though, Pierce made a mistake. He filed a claim against her bankruptcy, saying that she owed so him. So Pierce, the son Pierce, of the, the son of the ninety-year-old, files a claim against that bankruptcy, saying, okay. "Well, she also owes me money for defamation. She's been running my name okay. through the mud." And so this then requires bankruptcy court to go in and examine the entire will testing, oh. figure out that whole relationship, and figure out what's all due there. And so he's now made this contesting of the will even uh-huh. more difficult okay. because he was like, oh, no, that's not all. <laughs> yeah. So like really um, a really short sighted mistake. He was really fired up at the time and just like uh-huh. a really short sighted mistake that he made. And if he hadn't have done that, things would have been settled much more quickly. OK. OK. So when the trial finally started in 2000, Anna Nicole Smith was called to the stand Um, of her late husband, she told the judge, I don't care what anybody says. I loved that man. Her case was backed by Pierce's brother. So the older, Mm -hmm. the other son that was also left out of the will said, um, that I lost my place. (laughs) He said that he lost his place. Well, he did lose his place in the will. That's correct. Poor guy. So, um, he told the judge that his father had repeatedly told him in telephone conversations how genuinely he loved her and that he did intend to provide for her after his death. Um... So then, so this, that case was happening in Houston. That's where mm-hmm. the will contesting was filed. The probate court was happening in Houston. The bankruptcy court was happening in California. Gotcha. So on October 6, 2000, the bankruptcy court in California ruled that Anna Nicole Smith was entitled to $449.7 million from oh. her late husband. Whoa. Yes. He also ruled... That the stepson should pay her an additional $25 million in punitive damages. Pierce, the stepson? Yes. Okay. Um, Judge Samuel Buford criticized Pierce Marshall, finding that he conspired with his father's lawyers and accountant to thwart J. Howard's wishes. He called his behavior towards Anna Nicole intentional and reprehensible. Wow. Yeah. You know... 
I'm thinking about this. Like, yeah, a relationship with that kind of age gap is definitely gross. Yes. To me. But at the same time, it's almost to me like there's a transaction taking place. And well, like, yeah, yeah, and that's really, and that was kind of Anna Nicole's whole thing. Yes, she did come to love him, but yes, initially she did. He said, you know, I'll take care of you for the rest of your life if yeah. you marry me. Yeah, and to me, it's like, okay, well, yeah, I I would be grossed out if my dad did that too. Absolutely. But, you know, if, if that was what both of them signed on for, then, ugh. Yeah. What can you do? Yes. So, California Bankruptcy Court rules that she gets $450 million, basically. Okay. Plus $25 million in punitive damages. And then we saw this other case, the probate case, going on over here in Houston. I should be pointing the opposite directions, but... <laughs> I, I'm with you. I'm good. <laughs> so, in 2001... Houston probate court rules that Smith is entitled to nothing. The judge even ordered Smith to pay over $1 million in fees and expenses to Pierce's legal team. Jeez. So the conflict between the Texas probate court and the California bankruptcy court forced this matter into federal court. So since the two courts are ruling separately, okay, now this needs to be looked at in federal court. God, what a mess. Yes. So in March of 2002, a federal judge vacated the California bankruptcy court's ruling and issued a new ruling. This new ruling reduced the award to $88 million. So about half the earnings that Marshall made during the time that they were married. So he said, yes, you are, you are, you know, do some of it, but not his entire fortune. Just the part that he made during your actual marriage. Which was like a just get half of that. Yes. Yeah. So, um, $88 million is what he decided. I'd be fine with that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'd make do somehow. Yes. With a few coupons. That wasn't the end of it, though. Okay. There were just appeals going on on both sides of this for forever. Okay. So, in December 2004... A three-judge panel of the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed this $88 million ruling Mm -hmm. and said that the federal court lacked jurisdiction to overrule a probate court decision. So it says bankruptcy court, or even federal court cannot overrule what this bankruptcy court and or what I'm sorry, what this probate court said. Okay. So from there. Um, they asked the U.S. Supreme Court to hear the appeal, and they agreed in September of 2005. That is the craziest. Isn't that crazy? I cannot believe Yes, because you've got all these other courts going on. And so since none of these courts can have, they're all, you know, in disagreement with each other. So it just keeps going higher and higher up the chain. Now it's all the way at the Supreme Court. Well, yeah, and when you can't agree on who gets to decide, absolutely, you've got no other choice. Yes. So, after months of waiting, Smith and Pierce learned the Supreme Court's decision on May 1st, 2006. Um, So, I mean, like eight months, nine months after it went to the Supreme Court, they finally get a decision. Yeah. The justices decided unanimously in favor of Smith. Wow. The decision did not give Smith a portion of her husband's estate, however, 
Um, it did affirm her right to pursue a share of it in federal court. Good God. Yeah. So they're still not yeah. saying, yes, you're, you get this amount. They're saying, yeah, none of that stuff counts, uh-huh. but you can continue forward in federal court and seek a portion of the estate. Good grief. Okay. Yeah. Um, on June, so... Who wrote the opinion? RBG. Yes! <laughs> can you imagine? Yes. <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so then, in, on June 20th, 2006, less than four months after he stood on the steps of the Supreme Court and vowed that his stepmother would not see a dime of his father's estate... Pierce Marshall, 67, succumbed to what his family described as a brief and extremely aggressive infection. Hmm. Following his death, his widow, Elaine T. Marshall, pursued the case on behalf of his estate. The case was remanded to the Ninth Circuit to adjudicate the remaining appellate issues not previously resolved. Hmm. So now it's back in appeals court. I I know this is a weird thing to take away from what you just said, but... The part of him being 67, her being, I imagine she was in her early 30s at this point. Yes. And he has to call her his stepmom. Stepmom, I know. Weird, yes. Weird, weird, weird. Yes, absolutely. That same year, Anna Nicole had become pregnant with a baby girl. The speculation of the father was tabloid fodder and pictures of Anna Nicole and her lawyer, Howard K. Stern, and how and her boyfriend Larry Burkhead graced the cover of every magazine in the grocery store checkout line. Do you remember oh, this? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Like it was huge. I mean huge. 2006. I mean you couldn't see a magazine without Anna Nicole and Howard or Anna Nicole and Larry. Because at that um, point they'd done their e-reality show, right? Yes. Okay, yep. Yeah. Which oh my god, I loved that yes. show. <laughs> so even the three this is what's really kind of crazy. The three of them, uh-huh. Anna Nicole Howard K. Stern, her lawyer and best friend, yeah. and then her boyfriend, Larry Burkhead, were all living together in the Bahamas. What? Yes, they were all living in the same house together. That is weird. Yeah, yes. yeah. So it was widely believed that Larry Burkhead was the father. But when Anna Nicole gave birth to Danny Lynn Hope on September 7th, 2006, she listed Stern as the father on the birth certificate. Hmm. Her son, Daniel, who'd been living in L.A., traveled to the Bahamas where Anna Nicole had been living, as I mentioned, with Larry and Howard. Sure. um, To be with his mom after she had delivered his baby sister. He arrived at the hospital late that night and stayed up most of the night with his mom and Howard. The next morning, Anna Nicole woke to find her son in bed with her unresponsive. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. A team of doctors responded, but it was too late. He was gone. How old was he? Like nineteen. Um, nineteen, I oh think. My God. Yeah. Yep. Um, his death was ruled an accident, a result of a lethal combination of prescription drugs. So he oh. had, I think it was um, Zoloft, um, methadone, and then something else in his system. And he mm. had he had a prescription for one of the things. His mom had a prescription for another yeah, one of the things. And then the third thing, yeah. they're not sure where it came okay. from. But it was ruled an accident due to a lethal combination of those drugs. Um, following Daniel's death... Anna Nicole Smith spiraled out of control. Mm-hmm. She never ate. She rarely held the baby. She 
just took her pills and Howard had to help her take her pills. Mm -hmm. Um, And she slept with a poster-sized photo of her son, Daniel. In February, they flew to Hollywood, Florida. Anna Nicole was suffering from a massive infection, the product of abscesses within the tissue of her buttocks from a vitamin and growth hormone injection. So I don't know if you remember this. So she um, famously lost a bunch of weight and she became the spokesman for Trim Spa Baby. That's right. (laughs) So really what she was doing was injecting herself with human growth hormone and vitamins. And that's how she lost all the weight. Okay. Um, Because she lost it like... Super fast. Really fast. It was like, how much weight? Like... It was quite it a was bit. It was quite a bit, and yeah. way, way too fast. Super fast. So, yeah. So, this is how she was losing the weight was okay. through these injections. And so, the injection sites became super infected uh. somehow. Though she was sick, she'd wanted to make the trip to Florida. They were joined by a few of their friends, as well as her next-door neighbor from Studio City. Um, this is her psychiatrist, who she called Dr. Chris. And he's the one who prescribed all of her, all the medications that she was on. And she was abusing these medications. I mean, she was on all kinds of stuff, and she okay. had been for years. Oh. Um, when she was pregnant, actually, when she first found out she was pregnant, she decided that she wanted to have this, like, healthy pregnancy. Okay. She just, like, stopped taking all the drugs. She started running every day. And then um, something happened, and she had, oh, on implant one of her implants burst oh and so when she had to have surgery Uh to repair it to get a new implant they put her back on painkillers and she became addicted to them again yeah oh god so with a fever of 105 degrees she struggled to sleep Hmm. she took clonopin ativan valium and restoril all in therapeutic doses She was given ice baths and antibiotics. She sucked the liquid sleeping medication chloral hydrate from a baby bottle. Oh, God. On the morning of February 8th, 2007, almost exactly five months after Daniel died, Howard left her in the care of her bodyguard's wife and another woman. Sometime after 1 p.m., he received a phone call that she was not breathing. Hmm. So what happened after her death, it was really just in keeping with what everything that had preceded it. Yeah. Um, Even the disposition of her body required the intervention of the judicial system. Following a disposition of her body. Yeah. So what to do with it after she died. So her coward and her mother were in a argument about where to bury her. And so they took it to um, took it to court in Broward Mm -hmm. County. So Miami, Florida. Yeah. Howard wanted to bury her in the Bahamas, which is where Daniel was buried, and mm-hmm. her mom wanted her buried in Texas. Um, the court was a shit show. The judge cried on the stand. They what? Said, yes, like, just crazy. They said clearly the judge was just wanting his, like, 15 minutes of fame. Yeah, obviously. Yes. Good grief. It was just, it was a complete shit show. Um, in the end, it was decided that Anna Nicole um, was to be buried in the Bahamas next to her son. Yeah. Which... I mean, seems right. Yeah. Then another court of a different sort became involved. In March 2009, then Attorney General of California Jerry Brown held a press conference condemning Anna Nicole's very public abuse of prescriptions. He charged Howard K. Stern, internist Sandeep Kapoor, and Dr. Chris with various crimes related to helping her obtain and abuse medications. Wow. He called them her enablers and conspirators. To many, it seemed like an open and shut case. 
Not so, said the judge, who chastised the government as overzealous and found it a matter of fact that Anna Nicole was a chronic pain sufferer who did not meet the legal legal definition of a drug addict in California. A jury dismissed the serious charges against them. So, yeah, so, like, full-on was were charged with all kinds of charges, um medical you know malpractice Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. getting these prescriptions and everything and basically everything was thrown out how do you feel about that like after you've read all this you know it's hard for me to say because there's probably something true to the chronic pain sufferer Uh but clearly she was addicted to these medications and clearly they were enabling her yeah so i don't know i it's hard to say that I mean, I think that despite them not being convicted of these things, their lives were basically ruined by these charges. I mean, afterwards, Howard Stern moved back in with his parents. He was, I think, stripped of his, because he was a lawyer, I think he was stripped of his law degree. And so, I'm, I mean, I don't think anybody got away, like, scot-free here. Right, okay, okay. So then came the matter of the paternity of um, Danny Lynn. No fewer than five men asserted possible paternity of the baby girl, including Prince Frederick von Anhalt, the husband of 90-year-old Zsa Zsa Gabor. Oh, give me a break. He claimed a decade-long affair with Anna Nicole. Uh. Once again, the courts were asked to intercede, and a DNA test determined what was known all along. The little girl was Larry Burkhead's. Larry took Danny Lynn and is now raising her in Kentucky and Los Angeles. Hmm. After Smith's death, the case continued in the name of um, her infant daughter. In 2010, it was ruled that Anna Nicole Smith's estate would not inherit any of her late husband's estate. Following the decision by the appellate court for the Ninth Circuit... Lawyers for the estate of Anna Nicole Smith requested that the appeal be heard before the entire Ninth Circuit, not just the appeals court. Um, However, on May 6, 2010, that appeal was denied. Then, and it's unclear to me how this happened, but then on September 28, 2010, the U.S. Supreme Court again agreed to hear the case. Finally, on June 23, 2011, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a ruling against the estate of Anna Nicole Smith, holding that the bankruptcy court ruling giving her estate the sum of $475 million was decided without jurisdiction. Hmm. More than 15 years had passed since the death of J. Howard Marshall, and it was finally decided that Anna Nicole Smith and her estate were entitled to nothing. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yep. That's pretty crazy. That's I mean, how long crazy. that dragged on, and then in the end, nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and in the end, like, the people who cared about it originally... They didn't even live to see yeah. the... Yeah, both of them died before they ever got to see any kind of resolution. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty crazy um, to see, like, how how many different people were involved in that decision and then yeah it carried on after both of the initial initial people who were pursuing the case didn't even make it wow did you did you watch her reality heck yeah i did (laughs) it's so funny when you said you were gonna do this case i was like yes because i've I always kind of liked her, but I couldn't. I, I can't tell you why. I know. I always liked yeah. her, too. She just seemed, like, really normal. 
Yeah. I, I think, mean, like, you know what I mean? Like, not celebrity. Yeah. Yeah. She seemed dingy. But, yes. But genuine. Absolutely. I, I think she seemed very genuine. Shall we wrap this baby up? Absolutely. Join us next week. When we'll be experts on completely different topics. I was so afraid you were going to make me say what I'm doing next week because I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) The panic on my face was like, oh, shit. Okay. Podcast Podcast adjourned. And now for a note about our process. I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web, and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. For this episode, I got a lot of great info from FamousTrials.com, Smithsonian Magazine, and IndianaHistory.org. And I got most of my information from the article Papa and Lady Love by Dan P. Lee for New York Magazine. For a full list of our sources, visit lgtcpodcast.com. Any errors are, of course, ours, but please don't take our word for it. Go read their stuff. All right, already, I'll do it. (laughs) 